Enrollment is open for Thomas's upcoming six-session live online course, Navigating the Levels of Trauma Healing. Explore how to work with the impacts of collective crises and challenges and learn tools to manage anxiety, overwhelm, and nervous system dysregulation during times of accelerated change and disruption. In this all-new curriculum, Thomas and expert guest speakers will engage in ecosystemic practices to collectively explore our resilience, agency, and capacity to stay present and find deeper meaning. Click the link in our show notes to learn more and enroll. Or go to www.navigatingthelevelsoftrauma.com. Welcome to Point of Relation with Thomas Hubel, a podcast that illuminates the path to collective healing at the intersection of science and mysticism. In his conversations with visionaries, innovators, artists, and healers, Thomas invites guests into a relational experience that allows inspiration and innovation to emerge. This is the point of relation. The following interview was recorded during a previous Collective Trauma Summit an online gathering convened annually by Thomas Hubel to share ideas and inspire action for healing, individual, ancestral, and collective trauma. Visit CollectiveTraumaSummit.com to listen to featured talks from our most recent summit and sign up to be the first to know when the next summit is announced. Thomas Hubel, Ph.D., is a renowned teacher, author, and international facilitator who works with the complexity of systems and cultural change, integrating the core insights of the great wisdom traditions and mysticism with the discoveries of science. Since the early 2000s, he has led large-scale events and courses on the healing of collective trauma, with a special focus on the shared history of Israelis and Germans, and facilitated healing and dialogue around racism, oppression, colonialism, and genocide. He is the author of the books, Attuned, Practicing Interdependence to Heal Our Trauma and Our World, and Healing Collective Trauma, a process for integrating our intergenerational and cultural wounds. He has served as an advisor and guest faculty for universities and organizations, and is currently a visiting scholar at the Weiss Institute at Harvard University. Welcome back to the Trauma Summit. My name is Padraig Tuma, and I am one of the hosts for the Trauma Summit this year. And it is my real thrill and delight to have an opportunity to sit down and be in conversation with Thomas Hubel, whom you all know. And we're going to talk about all kinds of things. I'm curious to hear what emerges in the space between us, Thomas. Thank you so much for um, the opportunity to be in conversation. Yeah, thank you so much, Patrick. It's lovely. I'm looking forward to this. I still remember our last conversation where we had a different setup. So I'm curious how it's going to go. Yeah, I know. I've been looking forward to being in conversation with you since then. Um, I want to start off by asking you uh, a question from your own youth, Thomas. I'm curious if there's any experience or friendship or something in your childhood that you think um, prepared you for the work that you find yourself doing now. Was there any indication or curiosity in your childhood, in your childhood that you think now you look back on? Yeah. Yeah, there are three things. It's an interesting question. It's lovely. <laughs> there, there are immediately three things coming to mind. One is um, 
or four. I mean, I grew up in a family that was, uh, my grandparents were post-World War II, so experienced, all, all four of them experienced the uh, World War. So that's maybe one thing. But the other thing is, um, I, already as a boy, I had a very deep connection to God, but I had kind of difficulties with the Christian church, at least in the village where I grew up, it was kind of cold and distant. It didn't feel like warm and open and, you know, like a place where you want to be and being community. So I don't know, it didn't fully connect with the place, but I, I had this kind of inner and I prayed as a child. And so I, I was deeply into the communion with God, but the setup didn't fully fit for me, at least where I was. I'm not saying this in general about the church. And then um a second thing was when i was uh, when i became 16 i uh joined the red cross and I, I became a paramedic already while i was going to high school i trained to become a paramedic uh, in the local red cross station and and i think that really um taught me so much about people, society, trauma. I mean, and only in retrospect, I see how much I learned about trauma at that time. At that time, I, I didn't deal with in the complexity. I understand it today. And the third thing was I was with our kind of small group uh, of friends at that time. We were totally into fantasy role playing games. <laughs> <laughs> and and we had such a <laughs> kick on this you know we were sitting off the nights literally nights or weekends playing in this fantasy worlds together you're gonna have to get a few of your characters away now yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> right. and and it was such a blast like we had really and we were so creative like i wrote the story as you know for these role-playing games for nine years like different you know it was an ongoing story and my friends too and so we involved each other in this world and and i think this also gave me because you need to be very attuned and synchronized to live together with characters in this kind of world and uh and we and it was a super creative time also this uh, so I, I really enjoyed it and somehow that i see that also as a contribution to what you know, i i had put a bit of thought this morning into thinking i wonder what he's going to say and i did not think that you were going to speak about um fantasy role play i am delightfully <laughs> surprised about that um <laughs> What does that say about the imagination? Because, you know, fantasy role-playing games tap into something of the creative power, tap into what's possible in terms of the kind of escapism that actually can show you there's there's a different way. I'm curious what it is you learned about, about healing through fantasy role-play with your friends. Yeah, first of all, like some of the mystical principles and healing and all this stuff is part of this fantasy world. So that's that's one thing. But... I think, as you said, there are two things. There's to be, because we were very good friends and we, and we were dialed into this mutual space and we could challenge each other. We could have fun with each other. We could, we could, you know, challenge each other also to go to limits of what it means to give yourself to a character. And that is not only always in the boundaries of the regular, like convention, politically correct convention. And, and I think, together to be in a creative space together it means relationship creativity attunement uh, and also daring to go into areas of life that are not conventional so you you're checking the boundaries of that and so at that time we this was very 
I, I enjoyed it very much at that time. It's fascinating. It's profoundly vulnerable too to reveal your fantasies of characterization to your friends um, that they see who it is that you want or they see how it is that you would want to be. You're revealing something true while you're doing something that's fantasy. Exactly. Way, exactly. Fantasy is a very true. I mean, I think all art has a capacity to tap into something that is mm -hmm. by putting aside certain imaginations of forensic truth, actually you're revealing something that's much, that's, that's a profoundly um, intuitive truth. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's beautiful. Well, I am so interested. Uh, connection with God, communion with God, Red Cross and fantasy role play. <laughs> <laughs> what interesting things from your childhood. <laughs> Thanks, um, You've spent your whole life really um, talking about collective trauma and looking at how it is that communities can gather around and have responses to collective trauma and, you know, thinking of collective trauma through people and generations and history and societal and psycho-spiritual impacts and effects of all of that. And my, my, I'm really curious to know when it comes to your approach and the language you use around collective trauma, how has that changed over time? And maybe are there any recent changes in the way that you speak about it? And what's brought about those changes? Yeah, it's interesting. I see my work in general, like as everything I do, this conversation, every client interaction, every every big group I run, every talk I give, I don't know, every book I write, like everything that I do adds more concentrated information into like a body of teaching or understanding or like a kind of a skill set that gets deeper and deeper. So I, I see all the time changes because every group teaches me something, every interaction in every group gives me a little bit of a different spin and understanding of a small, tiny aspect of the whole. And so I wrote this also in my first book. I said, this book contains all the interactions that I've ever had leading up to this book. And and it's true that in the 20 years, 20 some years ago, when it started that collective trauma showed up in my groups in Germany after the Holocaust and the Second World War, um, I got a kind of an outline of an understanding. I, after some time, I saw this multiple times, then I, I started to understand, okay, that, that's basically how the collective unconscious shows up. That's how we, we work with generational material that has been dissociated and is kind of ghost stuff in, in the middle of our society. And so I got this then, but then over time, the 20 years helped me to refine and refine. It's like when you polish something and every interaction polishes it more and the light that shines through the diamond gets clearer. And, and I think that's also what happened. And also I walked my own path, you know, I, through my own group, I learned so much in myself. I, I worked in my own work on my relationship to my ancestors, to my culture, or Austrian culture, where I come from. And, um, and then it expanded into how Europe's connected to, you know, or responsible for the, for a lot of the colonialism that happened and the racism in Europe. So it deepened and I, I felt every time I went deeper, something new opened up in the work and something new opened up in the work and I could go deeper personally. So that's in constant interplay and the constant learning and deepening. 
And um, yeah, so that's that's kind of the constant updates, and it's, that's why I call it also IAC fluidity and not method, like individual ancestral collective liquefaction, because it's not a method. A method becomes a fixed idea, versus something that's fluid is moving. Yeah, of course. And can you? I mean, it's always difficult to discern in the moment. I know that. Um, but is there anything that at the moment that you're trying to tune yourself into, Thomas, as you think about some things that you're paying attention to, as you think of the fluidity of this IAC approach? Something you're trying to keep an eye out for? Yeah. Now, like one of the things that I'm always going for the what's the next ripe fruit. So when you go to an apple tree and you want to pick the apples that are ripe and you leave the apples that are not ripe because they are sour, they need more sun. So I look at individual and also collective processes as there are some things that are ripe and some things we might from our motivation want to push, but it's actually unskillful to push that because it's not ripe. It needs something a step before or a step before that unlocks the next step. And and so I'm very passionate at the moment about um, like building, we, we are, there is already an NGO that we call the Pocket Project. It works seven years and, and now we are expanding this into what we call the Global Restoration Institute. And so where we, where we have grassroots projects, but we also work on top-down projects like with governments, with diplomats, with uh, like negotiation, mediation in crisis zones and so on, the UN. And, um, and I'm very interested in getting to a place where we can collaborate with governments on developing a social healing architecture. I think we have psychotherapists and trauma therapists and we have medical institutions like hospitals, but we don't have a, a healing architecture for the legacies that I think all the cultures around the world have some collective trauma in their history. But we don't have any tool, any any tools or places to work that really on a mainstream level, and so I'm curious how how we can work towards uh, setting that up on a larger scale. That, for example, the Second World War, the Holocaust, slavery, racism, the Native American genocide, the Irish conflict, you know, or the Brit in the whole British uh, history that uh, happened, like we don't have. I think we don't have any tools at the moment. So we just try to not have it. <laughs> yeah, and talk about prosperity or talk about progress. It's all a fantasy of the future. One of the things that I'm, I'm struck by in what you're saying here, Thomas, is that what you're talking about is a different dispensation towards time. Because, you know, working with governments, governments are always about are we going to get voted in? Are we going to stay in power? When's the next election? In a certain sense, a governmental imagination of time is really about your next term of office, which is pretty short, you know, three years, four years, five years, whatever it is with whatever government you're working with. Whereas what you're talking about is an expansive imagination of time, a very rich mm -hmm. present that reaches back and looks into the future with something other than strategic planning. You know, strategic planning is all about a fantasy of being able to say, if we do this, this will happen. You are talking really about, as you call it, you know, a active unconscious imagination of time. It's a metaphysic of time, really. How is it that you work with groups of people who have serious responsibilities for leadership to put aside their daily agenda for which they're elected 
um, and to not maybe not put it aside, but to f somehow accompany their daily agenda with a more expansive imagination of time for the betterment of their communities. Yeah, I think the more we understand trauma, we see that trauma is actually, as you beautifully said, is like a fixation in the past that creates a repetition compulsion to repeat the fixation in the past ongoingly, like a pattern that doesn't stop. So we hurt each other, there are wars all the time, there's gender violence, there's, uh, I don't know, racism and, and, and all kinds of other uh, things. So. So as you said, we need to create spaces where we can onboard that fixated past into presence so that we can really receive the future in the presence, not the future is there, but how we receive the future now. And, and, um, and I think that the more, or at least in my experience, I meet more and more people that really understand like the principle of trauma, trauma symptoms and collective trauma, because they're dealing with this every day. And once somebody comes and frames it in a way that makes sense, the symptoms that we are trying to handle <clears throat> in our societies. So then there is at least an openness to go deep and say, okay, what can we do? Like what are options? And then we are looking together what what kind of options are doable, maybe what kind of options would be great, but they are not doable now. So we don't go to the extreme of what we would want, but we, we stay attuned to the process and then see how to expand it. And I think, I feel that there are many doors opening at the moment. And of course it could always be more, but that's not the point. The point is what is real and what is now, not how we fantasize about the future. And, um, but I, I feel a lot of readiness also in, in some of the, you know, really high level corporate leaders, I see some of them beginning to, um, want to adapt certain principles in their organizational culture, maybe in stuff that happened in society through this organization and to come back to restorative processes so that the, I often say that the right to be being gets reintroduced into societies that are mainly about becoming and doing. And that, and I think it in the, like one human right is the right to be, to be alive, to be alive because we are alive. So we, nobody has the right to take somebody else's life because that's a human right. And, um, and I think because we don't have enough being space, which also means reflection, I reflect, I digest, I integrate, I learn. And when that's not happening, we're just repeating re-traumatizations as we see it now in the world. So we have to have more being space and being is the recipe for peace. And if we don't have being, we don't have peace. So, and, uh, yeah. Um, I'm going to say something so that we can circle back to it. Um, I'd like uh, in a while to, to circle back to um, questions of art and ritual, because I'm, I'm curious about how you incorporate ritual. And also, you know, you've got poets the whole way throughout your trauma summits. I'm fascinated by your, your curiosity and your interest in, in, in poetry and other forms of art too. But we'll come back to that. I just want to plant that there as a little seed. Because first of all, I'm curious to talk to you about spiritual trauma. When you mentioned, um, you mentioned uh, being interested in, in God as a youngster, whereas the experience of formal religion w wasn't wasn't something that felt warm for you. Um, where is it that you see spiritual trauma showing up? And I suppose I mean that formally people who were religiously affected or affiliated, as well as outside of that as well. Mm. Yeah, as you said, I think if if 
there is trauma in institutions that are connected to spirituality. For example, what we what came out in, in the church recently or the church and indigenous populations and the church and colonialism. And like, if there is a, if there is an institution that, that is centered around spirit and trauma happens in that institution, it immediately disorganizes our, our connection to the divine, because that's pure and that's pure and accessible for everybody in the world. But, the institutions that actually say that they provide safe spaces to practice are part of the pain. It's like when parents are part of the pain of the children. So this is a disorganizing impact on, on what I believe, where I see leadership, how I see authorities, how I, how I trust in, in, in the process of the world. And, um, and so I think it's there or in any other spiritual communities where, uh, where there's abuse of power, where there's power over patriarchal structures that are power over versus competence-based and relation-based. And so there, there, are different, there are different hierarchical structures. When one is very painful, the other one is with, it's power with, is we are together. And maybe there's more competence that some people step forward, but they also know when to step back that other people step forward. So it's a fluid process and not a fixed process. And, and I think, um, so that's one thing. The other thing is also that often that also in religious context, when the, the identification with the spiritual identity gets stronger than the original mystical message, because highly awake in the people or individuals or beings that like Jesus or Buddha or others, there was a true insight, something opened up. And what they say, said means that their word and the and their energy was the same. When the state and the energy is the same, then it's true. When we recite or talk about things that they said in the past, then it's only partly true because we are reciting something that's maybe is true on that level of consciousness, but it's not true for everybody who doesn't experience it. It's an, it's an aspiration, maybe it's a learning process. But if, if that crystallizes into dogma, and if that crystallizes into the inability to perceive the present moment, so it becomes a filter between us, suddenly I'm looking through this dogma at you, then it's painful, and then it creates trauma because it's not true. It loses the humility like all the big spiritual traditions talk about the bowing that allows a blessing to be received. And if I don't know anymore how to bow and really to be honest about my spiritual development, so what's true for me, I can speak about. What's not true for me, I'm a student, so I'm learning. And, and I think a lot of trauma happens like that. And when dogmas clash against dogmas, then there is a, we have religious wars, we have all kinds of violent situations, we have torture, we had inquisitions, we had witch burnings, we had the inequality between masculine and feminine principle in religions is out of balance. And, and that led to a lot of violence. And I think, and then some religious communities supported racism and slavery and colonialism. So there, I think there's an endless list how spirituality is connected to 
trauma. And, and that has a backlash in the secular world of an anti, I'm, I'm an atheist. So I'm defined yeah. by what I'm not. So another kind of certitude. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, but we can talk about this more. So that's, that's a, mm. a, an attempt to describe something big with in a short time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, like I spent a, a lot of my life working in the context of conflict resolution and language and, and in a place like Ireland that has been affected by British Irish conflict and where religion was an enormous dominant part of your political identification. Um, you see, I, I've, I see here the, the profound draw, the promise that such belonging offers and then the cost of such belonging too. Mm -hmm. And it's not like I want to say that such belonging should just be put away because there's something powerful about it. But the question is, is are its borders fluid or are its borders hostile? Okay. How is it that what are the wars that are unnecessarily involved when it comes to imagining identities and the, the interaction between them? Um, and and changing loyalties and questions about all of that. Mm. What do you see um, when it comes to to paying attention to spiritual trauma on on a on a mass scale for for groups of people where perhaps some spiritual principle was used in a way to make make it so fixed that it actually did more harm than good? Mm. Um, what do you see that helps? Yeah, but always helps. And and let's let's also put into the mix that like, for example, in the Nazi movement in Germany, there was a deep interest in some aspects of the Nazi movement in mystical in mystical powers, and also in the abuse of mystical powers. So it literally happened. And that's why our fear sometimes of being misled, being manipulated, being like, I mean, that's a became a collective mm demon in a way yeah, which sure. I think uh, we need to deal with and the way how to deal with it is that first of all is we need to stop because as we are running we are not good at reflecting you know when your nervous system is in active mode it's not so good in reflection so we need to say okay for some things being active progress innovation perfect Wonderful. We all want that. And we all we all benefit from the medical and scientific progress that we made. You know, it's amazing. Otherwise, we wouldn't have this conversation now. But at the same time, and not either or, because sometimes we say either or, also in climate change, either we need to totally wake up the world and we have no time for healing. Why? We can wake up the world while other people do the healing. <laughs> at the same time, we just share competencies. And... Um, so you also don't stop a hospital when the surgeon makes a surgery because everybody else, you know, is you just do that. No, you do everything. And and the same is in, in, I think here, we need to stop and say, okay, in order to digest this and reflect on it, we need to open the space, say these things happen or happened. And now we need a space to open that up, create safe spaces that are facilitated. Let's Let's bring that in. Let's see how, who we are, not talk about them, but talk about who I am in relationship to them. And then create spaces where many people have to, in a collective witnessing space, we have space to speak, to share, to see many different facets of the same thing and learn from each other. And I think these collective learning spaces help us to first reflect, notice how does the trauma live in me, the spiritual trauma, then digest it, 
have learned to create an internal connection in myself. Then I learn about you and I'm witnessing and feeling you while you go through your process. I learn from you something new about spiritual trauma that I don't know. So it's a very fertilizing, a fertile process. And then we can integrate the trauma and expand our perspective and get the ethical learning. Because I believe we get the ethical learning only once we integrated the trauma. Some people jump too fast to intellectual ethical conversations, but we don't have the embodied ethical yeah, conversation. Sure. When it comes to working with large groups like this, you know, a, a large group, you know, a big national bank, a big national broadcaster, uh, a university of global renown, a government, a big religious group. Um, on the one hand, they have a lot of power. Uh, and on the other hand, um, I often see that with with great power comes great fear as well. And so those groups can often be um, frightened of acknowledging the trauma that they've caused or been part of. And, and in a certain sense, the the defensiveness against that can in itself then make it even more stringent and more tightly wound, even though everybody knows large corporations need to face up to their past. And the, the fantasy seems to be that if they face up to it, the whole thing will crumble. Um, I'm, I'm curious about how you go about addressing that fear in order to say, actually, this is a way into life in the future rather than the end of things as we know it for whatever large corporate group people are a part of. Yeah, like my approach is always not to talk about fears, but to because once I get into the argument, why another way is better? I'm overriding the emotional process. If somebody is afraid to tap into something, open something, take more responsibility. So let's be with the fear. The fear is the first thing that shows up. So let's create a space where that fear has a space to breathe. Let's see what it's about, but not stay in the intellectualization of the fear, but let's begin to uh, be with it until I feel, oh, I'm opening myself more. I feel I can digest my fear, I ground myself and my perspective grows. And so what I think what often happens is that we try to find good arguments to convince people versus starting where we are and say, okay, if that's scary, let's, let's honor that it's scary. And it's, it is scary because it might have consequences, but let's see like who we are in relationship to the fear and to the imaginatory, I don't know, the imagination of, of consequences. And maybe that's not going to be true. We don't know. But what we know now is that we are afraid of it. And let's start there. And then we begin to open that process. So until we can have a deeper connected conversation, if we open that up or not. But so once I feel that somebody gets tense, when we bring a topic into the room, like pushing more doesn't make sense. And I think that's what often happens. And then people create an internal resistance and then it slows down transformation. And I would say, if I feel already that something is tense, so let's slow down and let's acknowledge that somehow. Let's see that something is something needs to be seen before we go a step deeper into the direction where we want to go. And I somehow have the feeling that that creates a lot of trust as like when I see people and when I hold a space for people, leaders, corporate leaders, whatever, um, the moment when we, when we see that that's respected and that's felt and sometimes even noticed without people saying it. So then it, it creates like a, okay, we are together in this. And there's also 
some unspoken commitment that we won't go further than the next step allows us to go. And once we have that trust, usually the heart opens up and then many people know by themselves that something needs to happen. I don't need to say this because we, we all, if something needs to happen in our life that needs to be restored, we all know it. You know, if somebody hurts somebody in a relationship, it stays as a nagging small feeling inside. And even if I can suppress it, when somebody mentions it, I feel this doesn't go away. So ethical restoration, um, the conscience in us, the, the part in us that feels when we cross a line, um, doesn't, doesn't disappear. It stays. Mm -hmm. I'm so interested that you mentioned trust so many times in that last response, because all throughout the conversation, I've I've had this idea in my mind about how a spiritual, well, about how a trauma is often a crisis of trust. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's such a deep desire to trust, trust in yourself, to trust in others, to trust in whatever it is that offers promises for you of some kind of belonging. How, yeah, so, and you spoke so eloquently there about about trust and the idea of in the face of fear, rather than thinking, how can I conquer fear, <laughs> instead of going, well, how can I create an experience of trust in the moment? Right. That might mean that something else emerges, something becomes possible. That's beautiful. Mm. Because what, what you're also saying, and I think there, sometimes we don't get the point that trust cannot be made. If somebody mistrusts, I always trust that the person's mistrust has a perfect reason. And maybe I don't know the reason because I don't know the biography of the person, but I know if I see they don't trust me, first of all, it's not personal to me. And secondly, I, I feel, wow, I need to honor the mistrust. And then by honoring that, we synchronize our consciousness with the real process that's happening. It's a withdrawal. It's like I'm, I'm scared. And many people override their sense of being scared by I should be a grown up person that is courageous and is in the world and does his or her thing. But if I feel this, so I need to respect it and then I can grow with it and through it. And and so when, and the other thing is that I think we have a, a kind of a distorted view of fear because first, once we are traumatized or hurt, the fear is a separate experience. So it's my fear or it's your fear or it's the, the CEO's fear or the politician's fear. But actually the privatization of emotion is already part of the trauma symptom because otherwise when you see a child that gets scared, the child comes back to the parent, co-regulates with the parent, and makes the fear a shared landscape. Mama, daddy, I'm 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 scared. Okay, come. I feel you scared. I feel you scared. Yuck. Fear becomes us, not your fear or mine. It becomes our process. And that's beautiful. And I think we can restore trust every time we make fear our process. Something safer. Mm. Um, I've been in positions of leadership for a lot of my adult life. Um, and I, I get loads of people that you work with have been in positions of leadership. And one of the things that I think of with leadership is how lonely it is. You mm -hmm. know, it's um, always easy 
when I'm working for an organization to think, oh, they don't understand, they don't this, they don't get it. And there's good reasons to be critical of people in senior leadership. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that those are always misinformed and the critiques of leadership are misinformed. But when you're in a position of leadership and you feel like I've got the title of power, but I, I have very little capacity to, to make enough of the changes that I'd want and never mind everybody else, that there can be a deep loneliness in that. Um, how do you how do you go about um, creating a wider consciousness of 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 loneliness and loneliness and leadership? And then when it comes to the groups that we're part of, we're looking at something like trust in the context of that, because leadership is always going to be limited. That's right. I would, I mean, I, I would first see that loneliness is a retraction from the surface. So when a leader is lonely, I would look at like how their loneliness is already part of their biographical history somehow. Because it, it's a it's a kind of a relational dynamic that most probably was there before and gets amplified by the leadership position. So I would I would I would look at that, and then I would also say, okay, there are certain things that leaders need to discuss with other leaders, maybe, because it's uh, we need a space where we share a common understanding and we share also the safe space that certain things we have to discuss there, but. Uh, for the larger part, I think um, that in many organizations, the vertical data flow, like in our spine, there's a vertical data flow. I believe in every organization, if there are hierarchies of leadership tiers, the, the, the vertical data flow, I'm fully committed to my organization and my organization is fully committed to me. That process of mutual support so that an organization understands the leadership function is very important. It orchestrates something. We can think about more fluid leadership models, but still, like we want to support each other in our highest capacity. And that's true for the both ways. And, uh, and I think that often doesn't happen because we are coming out of an era thousands of years of power over structures. And we, I think many of us are still bruised. So authority issues and all kinds of envy, jealousy, this and this, like and suppression and, and subtle power over and subtle manipulation. Like there are many of these things in our organizations and they are results of trauma. And so if we commit to uh, a trauma-informed leadership style, and trauma-informed organizational development, then we create safer spaces. I think where that dynamic can also slowly be liquefied so that we feel all we belong and still there are decision-making competencies that need to be with certain people maybe because they have the highest competence in the organization. Yeah, sure, yeah. Yeah. I mean, whether you're speaking about an organization or a, a larger collective of a community or a country, what I hear you say so often is about healing spaces. And now I would be really interested in you talking about ritual and art. You know, what, what ritual and what art is it that you think well, that you have seen that you're, you're curious about when it comes to um, addressing some of these things in the past and, and the yes. way that the past is showing up? So there, there is uh, one aspect, and when we talk about art, and then I'll talk a bit about healing rituals. 
so um like when i came out of my four years meditation and i did my first years of my work i got to know my wife after some years and so my wife is an international artist and art professor at the university and um and i have to thank her for initiating me into the world of art in a way that I would never have done by myself. I would never have had access to the depth that I have now and a deeper, deep, much deeper understanding. Also a much deeper, I got to know an entire new cosmos that I wasn't so connected to. So thanks to her, I, I can see also, and I learned a lot about the power of art in different forms being it poetry music but also visual arts films and 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 paintings like how un like the unspoken aspects in the cultural space um, are being represented by art as a psychoactive substance that the, the alchemy between a good artist and whatever is the topic creates a psychoactive substance in the public space. And I think that that's really amazing. And if we combine this now, I think the social healing rituals that I'm talking about have to have poetry, art, music included, because that has such a psychoactive dynamic in, in, in the collective space. So when I talk about social healing spaces, I see them inclusive of art because art speaks to, to our being in a different way than rational words and all kind of knowledge. I mean, that's important, but that doesn't run the show. You know, the show is the, the relationship when the heart opens, when we trust each other, when we create safe spaces. And also when we liquefy a bit, the, the power over or the top-down suppression of the mind over the emotion and the body as a trauma defense mechanism. That's why, that's why often knowledge is not the right way to address this because knowledge will just create more suppression and art doesn't do that. Art even disturbs sometimes our minds and say, <laughs> Yeah, and so experiential, yeah. Yeah, I think I I think social healing spaces are ritual spaces, and I think through colonialism we lost a lot of the indigenous uh, wisdom around rituals and embodied healing and music and um, and the various forms of trauma healing. That nowadays kind of a some kind of renaissance of of healing those wounds and 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 honoring that wisdom. But even beyond that, I think. We need ritual spaces because, as you said before, beautifully, like also in spiritual communities, the belonging aspects, when it's a clean community, the belonging is very important because it creates a cup, a container. And every, every transformational work needs a healthy container to create alchemy. And, and I think art is definitely an important ingredient. Hmm. Um, there's a line, as I was preparing for this, there's a line from Björk that came to mind, that magnificent Icelandic um, musician mm -hmm. her, in her song, Who Is It? She says, carry my joy on my left, carry my pain on the right. Um, and I, as I was thinking of that and looking at how you use the word integration so often, there can be a fantasy that healing is about the future where the impact of the past is not present. 
and what I see um, you put forward societally and also individually in therapy is that somehow there's a, there'll be a, a container, a cup, as you said so nicely, for how it is that, that things can be contained. And I can say, yeah, I do have my pain on the right, but I've also got my joy on the left or whatever those things are, you know, carry my courage here and my anger here, carry the trauma here and my creativity here. Um, that there is that for you, integration isn't about undoing the past or about saying there's a fantasized future where where you're going to completely forget about the past, but rather that there's something of of holding those together. Yeah, I see. It's beautiful what you're saying. Exactly. I, you know, when you eat, where does the food go? The food becomes part of your body. You know, it becomes you. It's not that it's like the nutrients that you absorb in your body become your blood, your cells, your your brain. I don't know everything. So the when we the past integrated past means that we integrate the charge that is undigested. We ground the ghosts of the past to disturb our present moment, but that integrated history makes us you know it becomes us it it become it become we learn from it and i think especially if we have to deal with the wounds to get the ethical upgrades if we don't deal with the wounds we cannot expand our ethical way of living we cannot become really better people because we become mentally better people we could become maybe sometimes politically more correct but the mind and the body don't go together then when I get stressed, I still snap on people. I still uh, whatever do whatever I do, and, and it creates impact because my what I understand here needs to live here, and and I think restoring ethics and and using the healing spaces as a way to say yeah we have to learn something here. We have to learn something from the Holocaust, and we didn't yet, and that's concerning because we don't make the time and the space to say. We're going to take care of this. The Middle Eastern conflict has to is fueled by the fuel that the unintegrated Holocaust, also including Europe and Germany, is is not being looked at enough. So there is the fragmentation will just go on. And I think we have to we have to say, yes, we understand that and we we create we create the architecture because without architecture we can't do it we need to create some spaces for this same as we created hospitals once because we saw that's important and we have surgery rooms we need also this kind of spaces funded by the society and the government because then the society says this is important for us mm. you know it's mm. public health sure and yeah so mm. so that's how we came full circle to the yeah to the mm. healing spaces mm. Um, we're going to be coming to a close. I, I'm curious about a, a really practical question. Um, what is it that you're doing these days in terms of locating yourself in outside space? Because um, I'm interested in where, like, where is it that you go? Is it the mountains? Is it the sea? Is it looking at a bird or a tree? What is it that you do for um, locating you on the ground? Yeah, for me, one, one way to locate myself on the ground is to sit just sit quietly that's like and and like as if then i not only then but that's an intensification of vibrating with everything around 
So that's one way. And then, yes, I love to go to the Miami coming from Austria, <laughs> you can avoid mountains. So uh, like, I love to be in the mountains, but also here in, in like where I live now in Israel, there's no, there are no, not really mountains. So the sea is beautiful. I love nature and I, for me, any kind of, and I hear the birds sing uh, out here in, the, in my office uh, right now. So then there is uh, like a deep connection. So I love it. And, um, and I feel that also, also, when I am in a uh, space, I feel that nature is always part of what we do. You know that that uh, that I feel connected to the biosphere, like I am a part of it. And so, yeah, so I'm. That's yeah. I think that's mainly it. But I think also sitting quietly and just being in it this is uh my main way of um, having a practice for for that matter so thomas i always um come away from conversations with you i'm thinking that there's a lot more to talk about i have got so many more questions thank you for the opportunity of doing that and for, you know for the opportunity for me to interview you at the collective drama summit that you've convened thanks for the mm. generosity of all that it's been a great joy to talk to you mm, yeah thank you patrick i always feel like this so when i feel you there's like such a lovely depth that you bring into the space so i deeply enjoyed and i enjoyed your questions and i think it's the first time in an interview that i talk about role playing so that's <laughs> <says> something <laughs> may it not be the last <laughs> <laughs> exactly so thank you very much i deeply enjoy it <laughs> <laughs> Visit CollectorTraumaSummit.com to listen to more talks like this one and to sign up and be the first to know when the next Collector Trauma Summit is announced. Thanks for listening to Point of Relation with Thomas Hubel. Stay connected by visiting our website, pointofrelationpodcast.com and by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review and share about us with your community on social media. Thank you. We appreciate your support.